Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have spoken to us in Your Word, that we need not guess what direction You would have us to go. We need not guess to what is good and true and beautiful, but that You have spoken in such a way that we might know You, we might know ourselves, that we might know the world that You have created. And so, Lord, I ask that Your Spirit, He would be here and He would impart that type of living and transforming knowledge through the preaching and teaching of Your Word. Grant us life. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So here we are, uh, week five. Yes, I'm doing a countdown every week. Week five of our series on a Christian view of government. By the end of this month, we will be done with this series and we'll move into a, a brief series on the Incarnation as we celebrate Christmas. But we are, we are at this point in the series where uh, I said to my wife this week, I'm like, this is the least sermony of all my sermons uh, in this series. But there's an important, important truth we have to get uh, from the, these texts today if we want to understand how God has designed government to run, how it is supposed to function. Because there are truths today that we simply assume uh, as modern Americans, and we don't really give them much thought. We assume the idea that no one is above the law. We assume the goodness of something like we are a nation of laws. And the fact that we just assume those, or that at least most people in our society, in theory, support those ideas, demonstrates how much we've been impacted by Christianity. Specifically, Protestant Christianity. I want to note that I've referred to throughout this series about the Protestant tradition. And I want you to know, understand what I do and I don't mean by that. All right. Tradition is not at the same level of Scripture. Protestants got some things wrong. I'm a Baptist after all. The first wave of Protestants got some things wrong. But it, it is a common problem today for just about all modern people is that we have become historical snobs. We look back and think that the prior generations do nothing and that we are so much more enlightened than them. When really, uh, we can't even know the basics that men are men and women are women today. And so when I talk about the Protestant tradition, I'm, I'm saying that we can learn from those who came from us and that they base their tradition on Scripture and that I have found their interpretation of Scripture faithful to Scripture and that it would be important for us to listen to it. And in other words, if you're a Christian and you've come up with an idea that no Christian for 2,000 years has ever come up with before, you're probably a heretic. Christianity is not a religion of innovation. It's a religion of revealed truth. And we have to learn from those who came before us. So where do we get the idea that uh, no one is above the law? And in the West, that can be directly traced to the Protestant teaching of Scripture. That it was rooted, this idea is rooted in biblical assumptions. That history has moved in the West from the divine rights of kings, that kings could pretty much do, whatever they wanted, to the idea of the rule of law. Throughout history, kings, pharaohs, and emperors almost always claimed some level of being divine. And so they did whatever it is they wanted to do. 
And if those people were to look at America today and hear that it is a nation of laws, they would have no idea what we were talking about. I'm giving an example. The uh, British atheist historian, uh, Tom Holland, writes about how Christianized the West is. Right, so he's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in the Christian God, but he recognizes the undeniable truths of Christian influence in the West. And he states that most of our moral assumptions are Christian, even if we don't want to realize this. So as he studied ancient history and antiquity, and he studied the pagan nations, including Greece and Rome, he started to find them terrifying. It's like, why do I find these guys so terrifying? Why do I think that they are so oppressive and wicked? Because clearly Rome and Greece didn't think that they were those things. He struggled with the why. And the answer he came away with as he studied history and he looked at the way that the weak were treated, the poor were treated, women and children were treated throughout most of world history. His answer was this, that even if he himself was not Christian, he was Christianized. That the way in which he thinks, even in a late-term, postmodern waning of Christendom, the way he thinks is basically Christian. And in his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, he traces the positive impact of Christianity throughout the history of the West. Again, you don't get this in your history classes anymore because there's a decided attempt to rewrite history, to remove Christianity from it, and to make Christianity the oppressor. But again, go back and read anything about Rome and Greece. And if you think people were treated better back then, well, good luck to you. It was Christianity that ended slavery twice. It was Christianity that elevated the rights of women. Rome had no basis or desire for that whatsoever. It was Christianity that brought about the idea of universal human rights. And these all come inescapably from the idea that we are made in God's image. That all men are indeed created equal. To put it in modern terminology, if you and I are just highly evolved protoplasms, you don't have any rights. There are no rights for protoplasms. But there are rights for those who are made in God's image. And so I want you to consider another example. I've referred to this several times throughout the series. Uh, the famous line from the Declaration of Independence. Where the founders write, We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now this may come as a surprise to you, but despite largely agreeing with that statement, I actually do disagree with a part of it. Those truths in world history are almost certainly not self-evident. They simply aren't. No one got them until the founders started writing about them and, and people before them. I know there's a debate as to what exactly the founders meant by self-evident, but Webster in his 1828 dictionary defines self-evident as this. Evident without proof or reasoning that produces certainty or clear conviction upon the bare presentation to the mind. That is, I don't have to argue to you that these things are true because it's just apparent. It's self-evident. Brothers and sisters, the idea that all people are equal and that all humans should therefore have equal rights is only, only self-evident in a society influenced by Christianity. That's the only place that it is self-evident. 
And of course, we live in a world that is created by God, so there is a sense in which it should be self-evident to all, and the wicked suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But if you read your New Testament carefully, you see that Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, had rights that other Christians did not. Why? Because it was not self-evident to Rome that all men were created equal. Roman citizens were better than everybody else, and they had more rights. So rights and equality are not found in most, most of world history. And in fact, if we're thinking clearly for the Darwinist, this should also not be true. Right? If Darwinism is correct, then the governing ethic of the universe is that the strong survive and the weak should die. The strong survive and should reproduce and the weak should die. So the, it follows from that that the strong should oppress the weak because that will better further the evolution of our race. Now you and I should be very grateful that most Darwinists are not very consistent thinkers. Because if they were, this is what would guide their political theory. And it did guide some political theory in the 1900s and that led to the slaughter of millions. If you want true human rights and true equality, you must have a creator God. And in the same way, what we're going to examine today that the law is king, is rooted in Scripture and has been taught and developed by your forefathers in the faith for generations. The reason why it is the assumed good thing that a government should do today is because those who believed in God and who studied the Scriptures diligently before you argued their case in the public sphere to impact politics, and it won the day. Christian nationalism and all that rah-rah, people get upset, whatever you want to call it. For much of history, the king himself was considered the law. In the Latin, that is known as rex, lex. Rex is the Latin word for king. You can think of uh, what my sons would like to think of, a Tyrannosaurus rex. It means tyrant lizard king. This is the joys of homeschooling. You learn things that you didn't learn in public education. But as Christianity took root, a different philosophy came to to rule the day, and that is lex rex, that the law is king. The king is not the law. The law itself is king, even over the king. In 1644, a Scottish Presbyterian minister, who was also a member of what they call the Westminster Divines, that is, those who developed the Westminster Confession of Faith, Samuel Rutherford wrote his famous books, his famous book, Lex Rex, that the law is king. And just for good measure, after it was published, it got banned uh, by the British government. But Rutherford's work was taken and secularized by the uh, famous political philosopher John Locke. And through both Rutherford and John Locke, it came to our founding fathers. But Rutherford was following an established tradition that you can even trace back to the Magna Carta in the history of Great, Great Britain. Before the Magna Carta, the king could do whatever he wanted. And through the work of the citizens, they came up with this, this charter that the king had to sign where his power was then limited. That he was also going to be under the law. That, he, that this is a nation of laws. One legal scholar notes that the Magna Carta has a striking resemblance to the outline of the role of the king in Deuteronomy 17, which is why we read that today. He writes this, 
The fear of monarchy and the requirement that the king adhere to the law is found both in the Magna Carta and in Deuteronomy chapter 17. In other words, there's a conscience effort there to limit the king's power based upon what scripture teaches. And it won the day. So I want you to consider the two texts for today one more time, right before we dive into them. I'm going to read you Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, and Matthew 14, verses 3 through 4. Beginning in Deuteronomy 17, And when he, that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, and he and his children in Israel. Matthew 14, verses 3 through 4. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. We have in Deuteronomy the clear instruction that the king of Israel was under the law. He was to write his own copy. There's even a check and a balance of this. The Levitical priests had to make sure that this was an accurate copy. And the king didn't get to have his own copy, his own uh, translation where he could leave out parts he didn't like. And he was to write this own copy, study it meticulously so that he would keep the law because he was actually under the law just like his people were. The law was king even over the king. Then you have John the Baptist who calls Herod out for breaking the law. And while Herod had some Jewish roots, he was actually a ruler within the Roman style of government. Rome gave him his authority, gave him his throne. And here is John the Baptist going to at least a somewhat secular ruler saying, yeah, you can't do that. That's against the law. And so I want to dive a little bit more into these, these texts this morning so that we might see the importance of the idea that the law is king, that it is over governing officials. And as we do that, we need to keep in mind what I said last week about civil disobedience. When we are categorizing laws as either righteous laws, which we must obey, unrighteous laws, which you must disobey, and indifferent ones, that same scheme there applies to governing officials. Right? A governing official, if he is told by a higher governing official you must commit murder, he still has to say no. Right? So they're under the law. The law is not infallible. Right? Laws can be passed that are unrighteous. Granting all of that. But with that in mind, governing officials must also, like their citizens, obey the law. There's a little bit more interplay here because the laws of the land are often passed or written by governing officials. They formulate the laws according to the processes of their country. But here, we have to note that federal and state constitutions begin that work. So what's the highest law of the land? I've said this to you guys throughout the series. In our country, it's the United States Constitution. At a state level, it's the Minnesota State Constitution. And there's something we have to note from all of this, that when we talk about governing officials in our form of government, where do they get their power from? Well, they get them from the constitutions. 
There are direct powers delegated to different offices in our Constitution. It's not as if if you win the presidency or if you win the governor of Minnesota that all of a sudden you become a king who can do whatever you want. But rather, your powers are outlined in a document. These are the things you have the power to do. If it's not given to you, you don't have the power to do them at all. We also need to recognize that the people, that is us, are at some level also governing officials in our form of government. The United States is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We are an experiment in self-governing. That means that you will be judged, just like a governor will be judged, for how you use the authority you have to govern yourself. Just as if a Christian was elected governor and I would say to him, well, you must govern well, you must govern righteously, you must govern wisely, you are a part of our governing system. You too must do the same. You are a governing official. Granted, with not that much power, but you will be able to exercise some of that on Tuesday. And you should do so wisely and righteously. And so the point must be trumpeted here that no one is above the law. And this means that the laws of a nation are called to, in some way, conform to some external standard. Where do these laws come from? How do we determine what laws are good, which ones are bad? For neither the king nor the people or any institution is a law unto itself. There is a standard above kings. There is a standard above constitutions. And that standard, of course, is God in his word. And so Israel's king was instructed, quite plainly, you are not over the law. Write this law. Learn to keep this law. Learn to live by this law. If you do, you will live long in the land. If you do not, you will not. To put it plainly, king, you are not allowed to do whatever you want to do. You have a limit upon your power. And here, the thing is, that like John the Baptist does to Herod, Throughout Israel's history, when the kings failed at this, when they broke the law, which was often, God sent a prophet to tell them, stop it, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And then the king would often refuse, and as he grew harder of heart, the people would follow him into sin, and this eventually led to God sending Israel into exile. I don't think it's too much to say that Understanding that the law is over the king is vitally important in the Bible. If the kings would have understood this, Israel never would have went into exile. The next truth we can take from this passage is that everyone is to be equal under the law. Again, a generally accepted truth today, but notice this from Deuteronomy 17. Why is he writing out his own copy of the law? Well, we read this that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. The king is to write out the law, recognize he is supposed to keep it, so that he realizes in his heart that he is not any better than the average Israelite. That he is equal before God to keep the law, the command to keep the law. This brings up the whole idea of the idea of the impartiality of the law. That means that justice and the law are to be blind to who the individual actually is. 
That is uh, what the whole world, word impartial means. God says the law must not, must not consider the who of any given case, to not consider the face of the individual, unless, of course, that is directly relevant to the case. But this idea of impartiality is stressed in the Old Testament. It's stressed in the New Testament. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 1.17 You shall not be partial in your judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike, the peasant and the king alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. For the judgment is God's. Paul in Romans 2.11 says, God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6.9, there is no partiality with God. Basic impartiality, injustice in the law, is just another way of saying we are to be equal under the law. There are no special categories of people who are to get preferable treatment. And it's here that we have to note that there's a direct assault on this idea Today, there is a movement that is ironically called social justice today that would be better defined as socialist injustice that argues for a term called equity. Now again, equity, you could fill that term with whatever definition you want, but what they fill it with is that true justice is found in equal outcomes. And in order to achieve equal outcomes under the law, you must treat different categories of people differently. Now what makes this different from ages past is that this is primarily aimed at those who are viewed as disadvantaged. That the law should favor those who are disadvantaged. And I just read to you three passages from the Bible that said don't favor the poor or the rich. The powerful or the weak. In older days we used to call such things as that just flat out discrimination. It's bad. Don't do that. Don't discriminate. Today there are whole pockets of people who argue for the goodness of discrimination. That's a fundamentally different view of justice and the law and that, view, that mirrors much more closely Rome than Christ. God's justice is wholly impartial and God hates partiality. The biblical position is that because the law is the highest authority, it means that all distinctions like ethnicity, wealth, status, authority, position, etc. are all flattened out before God. One standard applied to all different types of people. Because there's only one lawgiver, and none of your accolades mean anything before him. He's not impressed. You won't get away with it just because you are advantaged or disadvantaged. God doesn't care. This leads us to the necessary question. All right, the king's under the law. Everyone should be equal under the law. But where does the law come from? And I think this is the point that our nation is most fundamentally uh, struggling with. How should a nation determine what laws should be passed? Which ones shouldn't? This is definitely a question the church is wrestling with. And we're trying to figure out. And this is where the debate over quote-unquote uh, Christian nationalism heats up. I have to admit, I don't really like the term. I think it's often really poorly uh, defined but I don't embrace the term myself and I'm not also scared of the term, if that makes sense. Largely, like so much in life, I just don't care about what you guys are upset about. It's silly. And as we saw last week, all laws 
are based upon a moral understanding. They all put forward some moral assertion. It's unavoidable. So the question isn't, are we legislating morality to some extent, right? We can't change people's hearts through laws, but all laws make a moral claim and try to enforce a morality. So the question isn't if we're enforcing morality, but which one? Let me give you some examples here. All right. Why do speed limits exist? Speed limits are a moral statement. They exist to preserve life. And that rests upon the assumption that human life is valuable and should be preserved and that you shouldn't be allowed to drive however fast you want because that might endanger your neighbor's right to life. In that sense, I think uh, speed limit laws are righteous. They make sense. Let me give you another example. There's a growing effort in our neighbors to the north. This is actually the law where there are speech laws in the west where certain things are now considered offensive and they attack the core identity of someone and so you're not allowed to say those things anymore after all this is based upon the moral uh, belief that your self-expression or your self-identity is the greatest good and that no one has the right to or to violate how you think about yourself but that is a more fundamental right than being able to say whatever you want this is what the theologian carl truman labels as expressive individualism that the greatest good in my life is that I find my truest self and then I'm free to express it without anybody questioning me. Right? That's the driving ethic of most of our society today. So I recommend, if you want to know more about that, read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But those speech laws are rooted on that moral understanding, that that good, what I identify myself as, cannot be violated. And it's enforcing it on everybody else. I referenced seatbelt laws last week. Seatbelt laws operate under the same idea as speed limit laws, that life is good and life should be preserved. But there's another moral assumption of their seatbelt laws is that the government knows better than the individual and that the government needs to protect you from yourself because me not wearing a seatbelt doesn't endanger my neighbor. It only endangers me. All laws make some moral claim. And so we have to ask where do we get that morality from? When you go to the polls on Tuesday, what are the boundaries of the Christian morality that you should be voting for and hoping to come into this, this nation? How do we make up that mind? How should a country determine what is good and what is evil? And we have to be careful here because we've been severely conditioned by two movements, uh, married at the hip, to teach us that there is no morality. Relativism, there is no standard outside of a society or an individual. And its partner, multiculturalism, that argues that all cultural expressions or standards are equally moral because there's no universal standard. I can't judge one society's or one culture's what it says is good versus another's. To do that is to be bigoted in some form or another. But the sad reality is that some cultures and some laws and cultures and beliefs are morally inferior to others. I'm going to say that again because if I said that in a public university, they'd probably lynch me, showing you that they don't actually believe in multiculturalism or relativism. The sad reality is, is that some cultures are morally inferior in their beliefs and laws and practices than others. 1930s Germany 
was more morally repugnant than 1950s America. How do I know that? Because God has a universal moral standard that I can judge morality by. If you don't believe that's true, then you should go live in 1930s Germany if that was possible. It wasn't a good place to live. We can say that. The Soviet Union and Communist China are objectively more wicked in regards to human rights than the United States is today. That doesn't mean the United States doesn't have moral problems. It doesn't mean that we are inherently more righteous as individuals than someone from that country. But it does mean that that culture has promoted things that are objectively wicked. And we know that because Scripture speaks to these things. You can say something is wicked without becoming a racist. Well, leftists would disagree with me on that, but you can. We say this not because of some national pride, but because we believe in a universal standard. The pagan nations that practiced human sacrifice, that left children out to die in the, in the elements, were more evil than the colonizing nations that came in and established order and morality in them. In other words, for all the problems of colonization, and there were many, the problems that existed before colonization of much of the world were worse. How do I know this? Because the Bible says so. Human sacrifice is bad. Killing children is bad. If you've got a problem with that, well, you're going to have a problem with me for a lot of things. We can judge our own time as well. As far as it comes to human sexuality and the protection of the unborn, modern America is far more wicked today than it was at its founding. That's an objective standard. In the terms of slavery and racism, American today is far more morally righteous than it was back then. How can I say this? Am I judging between cultures? I can say it because God judges all cultures by the same standard. We could go on and on down the list. Cultural preferences. This is what I'm really getting at here. Cultural preferences cannot become the standard of a law unto itself. Just because a culture agrees this is good doesn't actually make it good. Hopefully we can all agree on that. And this means that cultures and societies can become unjust in a myriad of ways. The will of the people, in other words, can become just as tyrannical as that of a king or a despot or an emperor or a dictator. A voting majority can and has throughout world history oppressed the minority in its society. Put another way, democracy is no guarantee of righteousness. It's a wise check and balance on abuse, but it is no guarantee that you will get everything right. The source of where we get our laws is always, always the God of that system. What you measure your laws by is the highest authority. If the people and the will of the people are the source of the law, then whatever the people decide becomes the standard of right and wrong. And that means whatever the people want is the will of God. They're the highest standard. And thus the people become a law unto themselves, an idol. Or to quote the book of Judges, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The will of the mob is just as much a form of idolatry as Caesar was in the first centuries of the church. Morality must have a source, a standard, and a foundation. And so the answer for the Christian 
really shouldn't be that hard. How do we determine laws that are being good or evil? God and his word. The fact that that's controversial in the church today is mind-blowing to me. This is the reason why our courthouses up until recently had the Ten Commandments in them. They recognized that you can't just have laws free-floating out of nowhere because then it becomes arbitrary. As I mentioned before, the United States inherited the British common law tradition which consciously built its laws upon Scripture and natural revelation. And so we have to note natural revelation or natural law is a Christian doctrine. There's not natural law in Hinduism. There's not natural law in Buddhism. There's not natural law today. When you are arguing as a Christian, as many do, that we will base our law upon natural law, all you're really doing is trying to smuggle Christianity in the back door. It's a Christian belief. It's a Christian doctrine that there is such a thing as natural law. So I read to you this quote a few weeks ago from the foundational legal scholar from Great Britain, William Blackstone, from whom we inherited our legal tradition. He said, this is where you get laws from. Upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, that's scripture, depend all human laws. That is to say, no human law should be suffered to contradict these. And so the issue we face today is primarily one of foundations. The Bible is not going to give you a black and letter verse for what laws you should pass for the internet. But it does grant you the foundation to build upon. The old foundations are being attacked and people are wondering out loud, how do we rebuild? What should this look like as Christians? And we often want to default to, well, Christians should influence society without actually bringing God into the governing process. But the only reason that that has kind of worked for the last 50 years or so in our country is because we had a shared Christian tradition. We don't really have that anymore. In other words, you can't just appeal to natural law when a large segment of our population denies the most basic natural law that there is, that there is a male and a female distinction. Natural law. Yeah, great. They don't believe in natural law. It's staring them in the face and they think it's made up. So whether it be natural law or revelation, both of those come from God. And without God, the one who is there and the one who has spoken, there is no foundation for morality. And if there is no foundation for morality, there is no foundation for laws at all besides just the will of the people. And the will of the people have gotten it wrong plenty of times. Romans 13 says that the state is God's servant that the state serves God. A servant who refuses to recognize his master is an unfaithful servant. A servant who ignores his master cannot do his job effectively. And a servant who tries to replace the master with himself as the chief authority is wicked. The Christian view of government involves, by necessity, some recognition of God's authority over the state and his authority in establishing what is right and wrong. Without God, all we are left with is a free-floating and unchecked government who acts like it itself is God. 
Without God, the law becomes arbitrary and just magically floating in the air. It becomes lawless. To put it into view, acts of arbitrary law, whether it be through dictators or democratic processes, are rebellious, tyrannical, and satanic. By that I mean attacks on God-given rights. Tyrants are in opposition not just to human rights, but to God himself. And because they can't get God, they'll settle for you. Now, as much more we should say about all of this. First, God is over all institutions, but we must remember severe sovereignty. Right? The church is not the state, the state is not the church, and we should not blend the two. There are things that are not Caesar's job, and there are things that are Caesar's job. The church does not bear the sword, the state does. We should also note that no nation is the new covenant replacement of Israel. The United States does not have a covenant with God. We do not replace uh, the people of Israel. But to say that, it does not follow from that that then God loses his authority over the state. That somehow that just goes away. So we can rightly say that in some way, the new covenant necessitates a separation of the church and the state, but it does not remove Christ's authority as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, I think the New Testament's clear on this. It makes the exact opposite case. That because of what happens in the new covenant, Christ now has all authority in heaven and on earth. So let's make a few quick applications here. First, if we we're thinking about the law as king, biblically, we note that if a governing official, a legislator, a governor, a mayor, etc., passes a law or signs an executive order that is against the established laws on the book, it is they who have violated Romans 13. We had a big discussion over COVID, over Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities. Well, if the governing authorities don't submit to the law, they are in rebellion. They are violating Romans 13 because there is, no, there is an authority above them. Second, we have to note again, as I mentioned earlier, the concept of enumerated, enumerated powers, that our governing officials are given their powers through the law. The law tells them what authority a senator has, a mayor has, a governor has, a president has, and if they do anything outside of the power that they are given, they are in rebellion against the law. Third, a law is lawful in as far as it aligns with God's moral standards and, this is an important and, and the scope God has given to the state. So a law is, a law is lawful when it is enforcing true morality and the government isn't stepping into a sphere it doesn't belong into. The state should forbid murder. It should punish it. For that is its God's appointed job. The state should not have blasphemy laws. Blasphemy is wrong. It fits within the biblical morality that blasphemy is a sin. But the state has no business enforcing speech codes. Blasphemy in the new covenant is dealt with by the church and the family, not the state. It's still a sin, but not all sins are crimes, and not all crimes are sins. Third, or fourth, all of us, whether citizens or governors, are under the law. The laws of our nation and the laws of God 
are universal, or the laws of God are universal. And the laws of our nation should be built upon those. And you and I are to some extent governing officials who must submit to the laws of our land in how we govern. What do I mean by that? To put it most plainly, when you go to the ballot box on Tuesday, and again, Christian, if you refuse to go to the ballot box on Tuesday, you are a derelict governing official. It would be like a governor refusing to go do his job. Right? Not voting is not an option for Christians. That would make you um, sinful and lazy. But as you go to the ballot box on Tuesday, you must go there as a faithful governing official who is submitting to the righteous laws of our land. That means you should have a respect and basic knowledge of the United States Constitution. And you should support candidates who also have a respect and basic knowledge of the United States Constitution. If they think that Constitution is inherently evil or oppressive, then you cannot vote for them. If they will openly and have openly taunted and flaunted that authority above them, and you empower them, then you are empowering their sin and their rebellion. Don't do that. Don't vote for such people. Vote for those who recognize that they are not a law unto themselves, but the law is over them. Fifth, we should consider what the institutional church's role is in all of this. Since the church and the state are separated, and that is a good thing, what is, it, what is our job as the church? Well, it is to instruct the people, it is to instruct the state on what is morally righteous and what is morally evil. It is for us to instruct what should be legislated and what should be left to the sphere of the church and the family. It is to instruct on what the proper bounds of government really are. And the church then calls all people, whether elected officials or not, to repentance. For we know that when the state or governing officials break the law, they tend to try to replace God with themselves. And so we encourage them to repent. There's a long, rich history of this in the Christian church. I'm going to give you one, one example. Ambrose, St. Ambrose of Milan, from the 300s in church history. He was the bishop of Milan, and he constantly found himself at odds with the Roman emperor. At one point, a riot broke out in Thessalonica. Yes, the same Thessalonica from the Bible. And that riot ended up killing a, a Roman official. And the emperor, originally in response to Ambrose's counsel, offered a pardon to the people. He said, all right, normally the emperor would come in and just kill everybody for that, but we're going to give you a pardon because the bishop's telling me I shouldn't do that. Well, as the people in, in Thessalonica gathered together to celebrate that, the emperor broke his word, locked 7,000 people in this area, and killed all of them whether they were guilty or not. Ambrose reportedly then met the emperor on his way to church. And he barred the entrance to the church, called him to repentance, and he withheld the Lord's Supper. He said, you don't get to come into this building after what you just did. One report says that this is what Ambrose said to the emperor. He said, you do not reflect, it seems, O emperor, on the guilt you have incurred by that great massacre. But now that your fury is appeased, do you not perceive the enormity of your crime? You must not be dazzled by the splendor of the purple you wear and be led to forget the weakness of the body which is clothes. Your subjects, O emperor, are of the same nature as yourself. And not only so, but are likewise your fellow servants. 
For there is one Lord and ruler of all, and he is the maker of all creatures, whether princes or people. So for weeks, Ambrose said, you don't get to come to church, and you don't get to have the Lord's Supper. And after weeks of the emperor repenting, including wearing sackcloth, did Ambrose finally relent and allow him back inside the church building. May the tribe of Ambrose increase. If that, if that story makes you a little bit nervous of the interplay of the church and state, I'm afraid you're not thinking very biblically. One of our primary jobs as the institutional church is when the government breaks the law, the church should be the first one to look them in the eye and to say, stop, repent. We do not do this because we worship politics, but because we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We do not do this because the government is our God, but because the Lord is our God. We do this because we know there is a higher authority and that we are called to love our neighbors, and that means wanting to protect their rights. I want you to think very carefully on the failure of the American church on this matter. We have today, both parties, many wicked leaders who claim the name of Christ to some level. What if those leaders, pastors and priests, were more like Ambrose and met them at the door as they tried to come into church and said, you're not allowed in here with what you're doing. If they barred them from communion and worship and plainly told them of the peril of their soul before God because of their persistent sin. Brothers and sisters, if our churches would have done that in the 1970s, Roe v. Wade wouldn't have lasted very long. Millions of children would not have been murdered. And still some of those people line up to take communions and say they're good Catholics. The Catholic Church should know better. If they barred them from communion and worship and plainly told them of those things, the two thing, one of two things would have happened. Either it would have been plainly exposed that those individuals are not Christians, as they claim to be, or they would have repented and our laws would have changed. Do not be deceived, rulers of the earth. There is blood on your hands, and that blood cries out for justice to the Almighty God who will institute His holy wrath. You, just like me, are under God's law and under the Lordship of Christ. And so you, just like me, need to repent and live. You either stop your evil deeds or God's sword will fall upon your head and He will be right to do so. That's the message the church sends to the state. We don't answer to you, and we recognize that all of us answer to someone higher. The church opposes evil because it is the servant of the Almighty God and the true King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And Jesus' kingdom covers all of life. We'll see this in the coming weeks. He is right now the king over the kings of the earth. And so all of us are instructed to bend the knee to Christ and to do it now or to do it on judgment day by force. Everyone must obey his law and recognize his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your word we see your law. We see that there is an eternal standard of right and wrong. Lord, we know that us as individuals, we fall short of that law all the time. We break that law. 
And we praise you for the mercy and the grace that you have offered to us through your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would raise up faithful people in the lives of our governing officials who would call them to repentance and that they might repent and live. But Lord, if they do not, may you replace them with another. May their wicked laws go away and may righteousness return and may the people of this land come to you in faith May there be a revival as your word is preached and declared. As people look for a foundation, may they return to the cornerstone who is Christ. And may this nation grow in holiness and righteousness and put off its sins and find life in Christ and Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.